So welcome everybody to our study, our continued study of Mark here. Uh, just briefly, let me just recap quickly what we did uh, last week. Uh, remember, we were introduced to John the Baptist in verse uh, 1, 4 through 8. We talked about John's baptism. Uh, talked some about uh, my professors and the commentaries say that, that, that John's baptism was really a preparatory baptism. It was uh, done to prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord. Uh, different from Christian baptism today, which we'll talk about here in a bit. We look, looked at the term repentance and what that means. The Hebrew word, it comes from shuv, which means to turn. And when you look at it in a context, it's God turning us or repenting us. Uh, we also looked at uh, the importance of being baptized in the Jordan River. Remember the similarities that we talked about with the, the Jordan River, with the people of Israel crossing into the promised land. We looked at John's strange clothing. Remember kind of why, why John dressed the way he did. And then we delved into John's statement um, where John says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And we looked at the significance of that, basically talking about how uh, John's nothing compared to the coming Messiah, Jesus. Um, and then we kind of we got a little bit into the baptism of Jesus. Uh, we talked about why Jesus was baptism for a couple reasons. Recall we kind of talked about that, uh, that Jesus was baptized. This was the anointing. That's where he became the Christ, the beginning of his, um, er, his work here on earth. Um, second, we talked about, I gave the example of the clear lake and the sheep coming in and the, dirt, the dirty sheep. Remember that? And talked about how Jesus then taken the sins on the world. And I want to pick up with that just a little bit more. I think we, uh, Mark, we looked at the Mark verse, but I want to look at Matthew real quick. And then we'll continue looking in Jesus' baptism. But, and, then, and we'll move on then. Uh, so that being said, why don't we uh, start here with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so why don't we turn here to our Bibles um, in, in Mark, the baptism of Jesus here. It's Mark 1.9. We did read through this last time. And, and really, Mark's account is a little bit shorter than Matthew's. And, you know, we did have the discussion last time about, we talked about why would Jesus is baptized. And uh, a lot of commentators and theologians say that it's, it's, this is where Jesus took on the sins of the world. And I think it, Mark is not as clear on that. So if you could just bear with me a minute. I know we're studying Mark, but you know I talked about the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the, all three have similar stories, right? Each one of them writes a different perspective. Matthew gives us a little more. And if you'll just bear with me one more minute, I don't want to belabor this too much. But I know this concept of why Jesus is baptized is sometimes kind of hard to grasp. So if we could turn to Matthew 3. Verse 13, that's 1582 in your Lutheran study Bibles, if you've got that. 1582. So it's Matthew 3. 
Matthew 3, verse 13. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to... The, the one part I think that Matthew adds can kind of help us really think about this, why Jesus was baptism. Okay, so let's look at this. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Um, so this, this is what I, w- I want to talk about. This is something that Matthew adds. So John says, wait, why are you coming to me? I should be baptized to you. But Jesus says, no, I need to be baptized. And this is what he says. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to f- fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does this mean? I, uh, Matthew Gibbs is a... Uh, a scholar that's written our Concordia commentary on the book of Matthew. Uh, go to, I read some from, from Gibbs here. And Matthew says, With this language, it's here, then the sinless Son of God receives the baptism meant for sinners, because he shall be the sin bearer. So then Matthew go, Gibbs goes on to say, The likely meaning of to fulfill then, which we read here, to fulfill all righteousness, is, is it used here. It focuses on Jesus' deeds with, and the events related to Jesus, which Jesus then fulfills that were prophesied in the Old Testament. Okay, So then uh, it takes us then, kind of this thinking of uh, this sin-bearer stuff. Well, Isaiah prophesied about this. And uh, Christ becomes a a sinner here, as was prophesied in Isaiah 53.6. Okay, I won't have you turn there because I have it here. But Isaiah 53.6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. Okay? We have turned everyone to his own way. And then Isaiah says this, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And of course, that's a messianic prophecy laid on him as Christ, okay? So this is what this fulfilling all righteousness is about. Back to what Isaiah uh, prophesied. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So for for since we, as the prophet says, all like sheep have gone astray, God then found this remedy. He took the sins of all human beings and and put them on Jesus, who was without sin. And then in Coloss- in uh, Corinthians, which we talked about last week, Paul writes, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? So again, then Luther goes on and writes in one of his, his um, writings, it's in Luke, Luther's works, volume 51, Christ accepted this baptism, right, from John for the reason that he was entering into our stead, indeed our person. That is becoming a sinner for us, taking upon himself the sins which he had not committed. So kind of when we see this further in the context of Matthew, what Matthew writes, Jesus said, which Luke did leave out. Now, of course, we don't know why. But I think that's where our theologians had this idea of, why Jesus was baptized. Again, it was the anointing. Uh, that's where he was anointed and, and became the Christ. 
okay, and started his earthly ministry. And also then, this is where uh, Jesus took the sin of the world. Two different things. I did some more reading about this because it is very interesting. I gave you the example of the, the crystal clear lake. You know, the, 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 the dirty sheep come in, get clean, go out. Then there's dirt in the lake. And then this brilliantly white, beautiful, perfectly clean sheep comes down into the lake. And when, when the sheep steps in the lake, all the dirt and the grunge comes upon that. And then the sheep walks out. The lake is now crystal clear and that sheep's dirty. Uh, that's one example. Luther actually uh, kind of does it a little different, but I think the same that J- Jesus, the sins of the world were put on him there, but then when he was baptized, they were drowned. So a little different analogy, but in any event. So if anyone asks why in the world did Jesus be baptized, a lot of people unfortunately will say, well, because that was... He was given an example of what we need to do. But that's just not right. It wasn't a, a, an example of anyone. Uh, of what we do as Christians today. Jesus did this for two reasons. Um, that's God anointed him as the Christ. And this is where he took on the sins of the world. And, and we know that's true too with the crucifixion, right? That's where all of our sin, all the sin of the whole world was upon Jesus when he was on the cross. When Jesus was nailed on the cross, my sin, your sin, was nailed there with him, right? And it stayed on the cross and it's, for, and, and it's forever gone. So it's a great stuff with, with sin here. So any further up questions? I know we kind of hurried it through it a little bit last time, but uh, any further questions or anybody have anything further thinking about that? Okay. All right. Then that being said, then we, we've got that. Let's go back to Mark. And we'll pick up, we did leave Mark 10, or excuse me, I think it was Mark 1.10, yeah. So we'll start here then at Mark one uh, eleven. Okay. So uh, we did talk last time, uh, Mark uh, one nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John the Jordan. We covered that, and we covered this too. And when he saw, and when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And I covered that last time. So now let's look at uh, verse eleven here. This is where we'll pick up. So uh, Mark writes, and a voice came down from heaven. And this voice says this, You are my beloved son, with whom, with you I am well pleased. So obviously, there's a context of this. We know what the voice is, right? The voice that came down from heaven. That doesn't take to a rocket scientist to know that. It's God the Father, right? God the Father is actually speaking here when this takes place. And then uh, the first thing that God the Father says is, You are my beloved son. And remember, it, it right at the very beginning in one one, Mark makes that known. It says, "The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God." Okay, so Mark makes that right off the back. And here, then, as, as soon as Jesus is baptized, God the Father says the same thing. What are we to make of that? All right, we're to make of it that this is true. This is the Son of God. Uh, this is the Son of God, Jesus here now, who also is God and man at the same time. So uh, it's a declaration concerning 
who Jesus was, but it's also still because in this context then of the baptism of Jesus when he's anointed to take on his work, not only is God reaffirming that this is the Son of God too, but uh, um, the, also this is God really declaring that, 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 that this is now Jesus, his Son, where his work is begin and where he is entering, okay? And, and, and so really this is God also saying, this is my son who's now going to start his office and entering his work, which is really going to be in the salvation which he accomplishes for us on the cross. Okay. And this uh, proclamation then is who this humble person Jesus really is, my son, and, and also is voicing the Father's love for him, for now proceeding to do the Father's will and the great work that he's to do, which is redemption. Not only that, though, as you see here, God also adds this, with whom I am well pleased, or with you I am well pleased. Now, this is very interesting. If we think back, God has said this before, okay, but this first time here in the New Testament. Why don't we turn back to Genesis 1.10, This would be on page 13 of your Lutheran study Bible. We see it a number of times here in the context. Um, Not as similar, but the Hebrews kind of similar. So go to uh, Genesis 1. You see this is just the context of of all the creation. Verse 9, And God said, let the waters and the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And then this is a similar language here, but in the Hebrew. And God saw that it was good. He says it's good. And then he goes on and says that in 11, uh, after um, when, when the vegetation sprouted, on this he said, and God saw that it was good. And we see that throughout um, the next day. And God saw that it was good. And then even in verse uh, 24 and 25, every day he's creating different things. saying, and God saw that it was good. But God was saying it's the same thing with I am well pleased, right? So it's the creation account over and over each day. God looks at what he said. I am well pleased, okay? And that's what he says here then. With Jesus, when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And why is he saying that? Just because he sees his son and this is, I'm well pleased in my son. Well, really, it's, it's more than that. When we think of it kind of in this, the creation account, what well, we can kind of take from this, God being well pleased with Jesus, it's really signifying that Christ then is also here at this point, a new creation is coming into the scene. And, a scene. and then that in him, uh, creation, as it once was at the beginning when God was well pleased, and then because of the fall, not, but now when Jesus come, there's a new creation, and now creation is going to be restored ultimately on the last day, but really restored when Jesus was hung on the cross. So in that cool, kind of similar, this kind of same language that God used at the beginning of creation, using it here, now in this new creation uh, for the world, in Jesus, as he's starting um, his office here. Okay? 
All right, a few more things on the baptism here, and then we'll move on. Just uh, as I mentioned before, I would talk about it. How does the baptism of Jesus relate to Christian baptism today? So nowhere in the New Testament does any writer, including the Apostle Paul, invoke Jesus' baptism as a precedent or as an explanation for Christian baptism. Isn't that interesting? So what do we take of that? Uh, that, that it is two separate things. We've got Jesus, why Jesus was baptized. But then when we, as we know, at the end of Matthew, what does Jesus do? Remember Matthew 28, 19? We all know this, right? Where Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciple, or really in the Greek it says disciple or teach. Go there and make disciples or teach all nations and do what? That's right, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is where the Christian baptism comes about from Jesus, okay? So, but, and, and we know, then let's talk a bit about the Christian baptism. St. Paul, in his words, we know this then about Christian baptism, although Jesus says in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Paul writes more on this, and I think the key verse here in understanding Christian baptism is in Galatians 3.27. We talked about this in our Galatians class, where Paul writes this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, So I think that's the key when we look at this Christian baptism. And this is the critical point for the entire discussion. Okay? So if you would, keeping that in mind, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Let's turn real quick to the other uh, verse in Romans. Romans 6, 1 through 5. It's on 19, page 1919 of your study Bible. Again, that's Romans 6, 1 through 5. Real good explanation of a baptism. So, we'll go 6, verse 3. Chapter 6 of Romans, verse 3. Do you know, uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is beautiful baptismal language. But So I'm trying to make the kind of the differences and then the similarities between Christ and Christian baptism. So we know that in our baptism, uh, we put on Christ. Well, then in Romans 6, 3, Paul strongly argues that those who are baptized are baptized into Christ's death, right? But then those who have been united with him in a death will be also united with him in a resurrection. Okay. So then now let me show you the similarities between Jesus' baptism and, and our baptism. So, if we recall, just as Christ received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in baptism, remember we talked about that, so now we too 
since we are baptized into him in our baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit, right? So Christian baptism does confer the Holy Spirit, but it does so because we are one with Christ who actually received the Spirit and now dispenses that Spirit to us. Similarity, right? Okay. So we can't say that they're totally different, but again... Uh, and then finally, just okay, just as Jesus was declared the Son of God, which I just talked about, what's our similarity? We also receive sonship in relation to God by being baptized into Christ, therefore reunited with Him. So we receive the same thing. So we do receive the Holy Spirit in baptism as Christ did, and as God the Father called Jesus his son in baptism. That's what God the Father does for us in our baptism. Isn't that great? He calls us our sons or daughters, right? That's where, in fact, he puts his name upon us and we are adopted into his kingdom and, and, and are his sons. Something that. So there are similarities between uh, Jesus' baptism and Christian baptism. So pretty cool stuff, right? Does anybody have any questions or any follow-up on that? or? No? Okay, so why don't we go back to Mark then? So I think I've said everything I can say about the baptism of Jesus. So if you're okay, why don't we turn then to a new, very, very cool topic here um, the temptation of Jesus. All right. So let me read it. So we are in Mark 1, verses 12 through 13. And we see here, Mark writes, The Spirit immediately drove him, which is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Okay, a little brief here. Mark's a little brief, so as I did with baptism, if you'll just, let's, let's look, let's turn to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, gives us a little bit more. Um, so Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. So Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days, okay, that's different. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, let you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you 
if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, so a little bit more information, kind of. But let's do do just kind of focus on Mark here. Go through a couple things here on on what's happening. So now we see the kind of a bigger picture, too, with what Matthew writes. So um, here, the temptation. Uh, the, the first word we see here, the spirit immediately drove him out. I'm going to talk about a little bit immediately here. In the Greek, it's this term, uthus. Now, it occurs, actually, this is very interesting. It, Mark uses this term 41 times immediately uh, throughout his gospel, but then it's only used in the rest of the New Testament 10 times. So what it does is it, it, Mark really is using this word in a number of times because he's stressing it. It underlines really both this urgency of Jesus's ministry, which Mark will see come up um, so much. Mark talking about urgency, this quick action. Um, but here it's, it, it's Christ now when Mark uses it here is now formally installed and prepared for his work. And here, and he must enter this temptation at once. And this is all kind of immediate. Uh, we'll hear continue going out because Mark is writing to really with that ultimately Jesus is, is moving to the cross. So that's where he uses this term immediately over and over. Um, okay. All right. So in addition to that, we see that the Spirit drove Jesus out in the wilderness. So um, we can say that uh, the temptation of Jesus was brought by the Holy Spirit. I mean, here it is, the Holy Spirit's coming and driving Jesus out. Now, we've got to be careful with this because if you say, well, the Holy Spirit here is driving uh, Jesus out, um, we can't say that, that some I've seen some people think that this is Jesus didn't want to do this and he was pressured or forced against his will and he was reluctant to go. But no, that's not it. The attention, and actually if you look at the Greek, I didn't want to get too much in it. It's this term drive out. It's in this historical present tense, which is kind of a picture of action. Really what the commentators see here is what, when, when the spirit drove out, what, what, is, what this means is the opposite of you know, forcing Jesus against his will. It's just, again, this strong urge of the spirit but which, which was clearly also met with the consent of Jesus. So don't, don't ever, Jesus consented to this. Don't ever think otherwise. Uh, he did not enter into this uh, temptation against his will. And, you know, Jesus' temptation had to occur. We don't really know why, but it had to occur and it did occur. This was part of God's plan and it occurs here at this very time immediately. Okay, isn't that kind of remarkable? Here we have this great picture scene of Jesus and, and, and being baptized and the Holy Spirit coming down the heaven it's opening and God's speaking to everybody and then just right off the bat immediately what happens you know Jesus immediately sent out in this temptation okay so it was God's will to have his son's ministry begin with this mighty battle here against Satan um, in person, and then with really a resultant uh, victory, as, as, as we read about. Um, 
So, uh, in, in, well, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Can we back up a, a second back to the uh, temptation yeah. itself? Why wouldn't you contrast that to uh, Adam and Eve, uh, as I think many mm. people do? Because uh, I think the reason he had to be tempted was because Eve and Adam yeah. failed their temptation. That's a good point. And, uh, I think that's exactly right. Somebody had, Jesus had to... Yeah. Pass. That's right. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And the stark contrast, he's in the wilderness, not in the garden. True. That's and he hasn't been eating, eating, right. eating for yeah. days. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And you know, you guys are really good theologians. The, the, the guys that I'm reading did, didn't bring that up as much, but I think that is exactly right. What a stark contrast between Adam and Eve, right, and their temptation. And to consider he was there for 40 days without anything to eat. I mean, clearly he had it much, much harder. And we'll get into that too, especially with the wild animals. But Right, there you go. Right, yeah, yeah. So clearly, yeah, Jesus had it much, much harder here. That's exactly right. So good point. That's very good. Um, so he was tempted. Where was he tempted? Like you talk about in the wilderness for 40 days. It's interesting, this 40, kind of some parallelism. Then in the Old Testament, we see here. So Jesus was in the, here for, in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, <clears throat> for, four, for 40 days, he um, withstood the in, unceasing attacks of Satan, okay? Um, another thing I want to talk about, and we'll go back to that 40, but I want to talk about the temptation first, and then I want to look at the, the temptation also of the uh, Israelites. So, the, the, the word here we see is being tempted by Satan. In the Greek, it's perazo, perazo. And it is temptation, but in this context, obviously, this is more of a sinister, sinister sense, kind of in this context. It's a dark connotation, being tempted in a dark or bad way, of course, because it's by Satan. Uh, this is the first time here. It's Satan's written here. Let me talk a bit about what Satan is. So Satan actually comes from the Hebrew, which is Satan in the Hebrew. From the Aramaic, it's Satana. But both of these and both the Aramaic and the Hebrew have the same meaning. They mean adversary or, isn't this interesting, one lying in ambush for. That's what Satan means. Adversary or one laying in ambush for. And that's what Satan is. That's what Satan is to us. He's always laying in ambush for us, right? He's always laying in. And so also then Satan then becomes this personal name, name of, we know of this angel um, who fell and now is the, hell, the head of this hellish kingdom, right? That's what Satan is, head of the hellish kingdom. Um, it's also then translated into the Greek, which is just interesting in, the, in terms of its progression. To the, Satan is translated into diabolos, okay, which we call then devil. This all come, but then that even takes on a, a different meaning a little bit in the Greek. The devil is the slander. But when you look at it all in the whole, it's either adversary, one lying in ambush for, who is the slanderer. And that's who this person is here, obviously. Satan. Um, again, although Mark doesn't mention uh, fasting, we, 
we read in Matthew and Luke actually that, that Jesus actually was fasting during these four days. Um, so, and that's where I want to bring us back to this, the, these Old Testament kind of similarities. Lord Jesus is fasting for 40 days. And again, Jesus then is really uh, replicating the experience of the people of Israel or the people of God. Remember when they were in the uh, wilderness, um, they were in the wilderness 40 days like Jesus. Uh, they were in the wilderness, excuse me, for 40 years, not 40 days, but we see the similar parallels. Um, but you know what? Uh, unlike the children of Israel and Adam and Eve, that you guys bring that up, Jesus does it right, too. Jesus not, does not succumb to the temptations that they did, both Adam and Eve and the people of Israel. And just for a couple things, I kind of wonder, I thought, well, what are some instances of this? What did the Israelites do? Just to kind of refresh our memories here. So if you, if you want, or I can read it for you, let's go to Exodus 15, verse 22. That's page 122 of your study Bible. So when the people... Exodus fifteen twenty two. Remember the people over there in the desert. Um, bitter water made sweet. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah or Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, "What shall we drink?" And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him along, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet wine. But here we have already the Israelites, you know, constantly grumbling. In 16, remember the bread, uh, uh, this may be a little long, but let's look at 16, 1, 1, 1 through 13 here. Um, they, the Israelites, set out from Elam, and all the congregation, the people of Israel, came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation, the people of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, "What, uh, what would that we had died by the land of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full?" For he have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Again, it's just all this. And then, and then, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather. But just again, all this continuing. Uh, succumbing to temptations and everything, the Israelites. And then I'll, I'll, then the main one then, as I'm not going to get into it, but it's Exodus 32 and the golden calf. Remember that. So, you know, this is a kind of similar as the people of Israel and what they did. And, of course, you guys bring up an Adam and Eve. But then here, Jesus, same thing, tempted 40 days. He doesn't do any of this, okay? All right. So, next verse here. Unless there's any questions or anything to add to that. Okay. So the next verse then, let's see. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So just briefly, I thought you think about the wild animals. It can be translated or wild beasts. Mark actually is the only one that mentions this. 
Um, so I guess two ways to look at this. Some people think that the wild animals were there protecting Jesus. I don't think that's right. I think most of the commentators that I'm looking at say the wild beasts actually were there prowling around Jesus and continue just to add an additional element of endangerment to him. So here is starving these animals, Satan's tempted. So it's really a bad thing. And I think that's why Mark added this, these wild beasts were still um, they're They're not there protecting Jesus is something. So. One quick note. Um, and then Mark sets these danger really, I think, sets these dangerous animals in contrast within what comes next. These blessed angels who we see were ministering to him. So let me briefly talk about that. So we think about angels were ministering to Jesus. And when you look at that, like, why does Jesus need to be? We, we have a bad, the wrong connotation of what ministering means. It's like the angels are there sitting there preaching to Jesus about the Old Testament thing. No, when you actually look at the, at the Greek word, um, it's diakoneo, and it really probably should be uh, translated to serve. Okay, so really what's going on here is the angels then, at the end of the, all, all of this, um, when Jesus, as we read in Matthew, tells Satan to get out, it's that point then he's been starving for 40 days. I think that what we can see from this is the angels served him, probably gave him food and drink in this, at this point. So that's what the angels were doing. And the angels weren't there to protect Jesus from Satan. No, this was or to shield the wild animals away. They were there really at the end. They were there augmenting the victory of Jesus and actually helping him celebrate this triumphant victory over this temptation. That's why they're serving him, not ministering him, but serving to him. Okay, uh, just to close out kind of what this, I think this study note here actually does a really good job on um, kind of summing up this whole thing. It's, uh, you'll see here, it's 1, 12 through 13. And it writes, Jesus' successful struggle against temptation in the wilderness prefigures his final victory at the cross over our ancient foe. From the days of Adam and Eve, we have continuously fallen into Satan's traps. Jesus, after uniting himself with fallen humans through baptism, won a preliminary victory over the evil foe's temptation. At the cross, Jesus gained an event more wonderful, gained an even more wonderful victory for us. His resurrection proves that Satan cannot prevail. So really, that's it too. This this is a certain victory that Jesus has, but this is not the ultimate victory, right? In fact, the ultimate victory was on the cross when he was crucified. Now remember, we confess um, in the Apostles' Creed, and Jesus descended into hell, or is it the Nicene Creed? We 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 talk about Jesus's descent into hell. Just briefly, and I don't want to get into too much, but Jesus's descent into hell. Remember, he's, he dies on the cross, taken off the cross, laid into the tomb. And at some point, we don't know when, but, but uh, Jesus is in his body before he actually comes out of the tomb. Uh, within bodily form, actually goes to hell. And this is another, he, and he goes to hell not to try to convert the people who are in hell or anything. But he goes for the sole purpose of kind of what he did with the angel here. It was a victory lap. Jesus went into hell because that was his ultimate victory. And he went down to hell to proclaim his victory to Satan and all the demons in hell. So that's really the ultimate victory party there. 
as uh, at Jesus's, when Jesus overcome came death, um, the ultimate victory. Okay? Any other questions or following up that? All right, now we get into, so we've got the baptism, the temptation. Now we're getting down to this, this baptism and temptation stuff is kind of this vertical stuff at the beginning, God here, and then, and now Jesus is now, this is where his earthly ministry is, okay? And this is where we're going to start, really where Jesus begins his ministry. So we'll look at these two verses here. Um, Jesus begins his ministry, now, after John the Baptist, it says now after John was arrested, but that's John the Baptist. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right, this is his first right here. So the narrative here moves forward very quickly. Mark really doesn't give much now between the temptation and the early days of Christ's official work. We come to this. And here is where Jesus commences his ministry, proclaiming this astounding news that really what's going on here is Jesus announcing that this eschatological reign of God is now in Jesus. Okay, And, that's, and it's broken into the scene here. So he's announcing to the world. So verse 14, it starts out, now after John was arrested, this, this uh, will assume, I guess, when Mark writes this, that his readers knows what happened to John. And we will get to this in Mark in chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. We'll cover the whole story of uh, John being arrested, okay? We'll get to that, but it is mentioned here, okay? So I guess it marks assuming that the readers at the time were going to know this, but then he does address it in, in, in chapter 6. Um, Jesus then, this is interesting, Jesus came into Galilee. Now I think this is important why John, I mean why maybe Mark mentions now after John was arrested here, because when we look, when we'll look at this further down the road, uh, Herod Antipas is actually John's captor, and Herod is in control of this land of Gal- the Galilee and the surrounding areas. So isn't it interesting, Jesus goes into Galilee after John is, has been taken captive, and it actually is in now this area under Herod, who's captured John. So why why? I mean, we really don't know, but some commentators say, you know, the question is, is our Lord challenging Herod directly by moving this area right off the bat? I mean, we, again, don't really know, but we know from reading Mark further that, you know, Jesus, as we're going to see, is always ready, able, and willing to confront hostile authorities, right? No question there. So we should maybe not discount Jesus right here off the bat, taking an aggressive stance, heading right off the bat, heading into this area of Galilee where now John the Baptist is in prison and ultimately dies and, and knowing that Herod's there, there. So, don't really know, but that could be the case. Okay, and then what does do, what is, what is, what does Jesus do? He's, so Mark writes, so then he goes into Galilee and what is Jesus, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I have a question where it says, uh, Repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna cover that pretty much in, really in depth. But go ahead, you got a question on because that? Because to me, gospel are the first synodic 
you know, four, four Gospels. So is he referring to good news, or what was the word that was used? Because it's odd that he said, repent and believe in the Gospel. Yeah, yeah if you'll give me a bet, I'm going to get okay. to that, I promise here, because this is a huge thing that sticks out, and we do need to talk, but I'm definitely going to do that. But, but, but it, before we get there, notice that it, it, this is right, this is a good foundation we're talking about. Is what is Jesus doing? Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. It could also be translated from the Greek, proclaiming the good news of God. So that, that's, and I'm going to get more into the gospel here in a minute, but isn't it interesting? Mark writes that right at Jesus, when he goes out, what he's doing is proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, isn't it kind of strange? We know who Jesus is. We've just seen all this stuff uh, in his baptism. We know God is the Son of God. Uh, Satan attacks him. He overcomes this. But then Mark, as opposed to just jumping into which we're, what we're going to be getting into, is all Jesus performing all these miracles and everything. No, Mark doesn't focus on that. Mark focuses on that Jesus he came into Galilee. Number one, what he's doing is proclaiming the gospel. So this, I think what we can make of this is this is an indication that Jesus' mission here is fundamentally oriented not to all these miracles and all this other stuff he does. But Mark is making his point, I think, with this, that Jesus is rather focused towards the proclamation of the importance of the word and the gospel. So I think that's very telling here the way that Mark has set this up because we, you know, we, we as you see just in another couple of verses over we're going to get in all these the healings and all this other stuff. But then Mark right off the bat when he's introducing Jesus in his ministry to say, "Well, I'm going to tell you about Jesus heading out and doing all these miracles." No, he says, "This is Jesus proclaiming the gospel." Okay, and again, this is actually consistent with what Mark again wrote in verse one one. What is he talking about in one one? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. And then he says, and, and Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God, and then saying this: the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay. So uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. I think actually the study guide, after everything I've read, does a really good job with this too and and sums up, I think, um, what other theologians have written on this very well. So if you look down at uh, the note on 115, what does this mean? The kingdom of God is at hand. The study note writes, the kingdom has come in the advent of Jesus and the verb in the Greek is, is, the way it's structured, is emphasizes a completed action. So, for he came to fulfill all of God's promises about the salvation of the world. Throughout his ministry, Jesus invited people to enjoy God's kind rule by living under his grace and righteousness. And Luther writes, once we have his word, true doctrine and true worship, we also pray that his kingdom may be in us and remain in us. That is, that he may govern us in this doctrine and life, that he may protect and preserve us against all the power of the devil and the kingdom, and that he may shatter all the kingdoms that rage against his kingdom so that it shall so that it alone may remain. So this is it. The kingdom of God is here, and it will continue to be here until the end of time. So this is what's going on here. So the kingdom of God is now at hand. Um, Okay, now, good, Alice, to your question now. 
So let's talk about a couple things. It says, um, repent and believe in the gospel. Okay. Um, I'm going to address this concept of this order here and everything. And it's a little deep and I think I can get through it. If not, we'll, we'll come back to it too. But, but first of all, really, this idea, let's take repent out of it a minute here. But we can leave it in when I explain it. So repent and believe in the gospel. Really here is really the basic uh, statement concerning Christian faith, right? So let's turn to Acts 16. 30, that's on 1870 of your study Bible, if you have that. Acts 16.30. And there's multiple examples to the Bible, but I just think this one's cool. Going to talk about this. All right. So this is the Philippian jailer converted, right? It's what our Bible said. So let's look at um, verse, well, maybe we should back up. Let's Let's just start at verse 25 then. So it's Acts 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And remember that he's in jail. And the prisoners were listening to to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It's kind of some high-stress job pressure right there, right? (laughs) Okay. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, meaning Paul and Silas, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So this is uh, similar. I mean, this is what Jesus is saying here. Believe in the gospel. It's similar to the statements to the, to the jailer at Philippi. When asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Also, we know this, Father, the biggest main passions we see at the football games, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will be saved, uh, shall be saved, and, and shall not perish but have eternal life. So this is really the foundation of our, um, of our Christian belief. Now, let's do uh, kind of look at this repent here. It's a, it's a little confusing. Um, I had to go to our, the, our book of Concord. This is in the solid declaration. of It's Article 5. It's talking about the distinction between law and gospel. And what's interesting that it's when the writers um, of the solid declaration uh, write that we, we kind of see gospel in two senses here. There's this general sense of a, the gospel. It's this generalis definio. It's really a, a broader meaning than the way we normally look at gospel. We have uh, law and gospel and restrictions, but we're kind of looking here, and this is kind of a broad gospel look. So in this sense, then, it's, the gospel is the entire teaching of Christ. Okay, That is the gospel, and that's what Jesus is talking about. So 
It's correct to, de- to define it in this sense. The word as a proclamation of repentance and forgiveness of sins in this wide sense of the gospel, okay? It is because of this. When you properly understand repentance and this turn language that we talked about, the book of Concord writes that repentance actually is this entire conversion of the person. And where does that come from? From the Holy Spirit in your baptism, okay? So then it's proper to speak kind of in this way, repent and, and believe. So repentance really means it's this entire conversion of the person. Now let me go to gospel in the strict sense and then I'll, I'll, I'll put it back together because the study note does a good job. So that's the sense here of this entire gospel. Now, the gospel then, when we look at it in the strict sense, when we look at it between law and gospel, this is is what is written. The gospel in the strict sense teaches what people should believe. Namely, they receive from God the forgiveness of sins. That is, that the Son of God, our Lord Christ, has taken upon himself the curse of the law and bore it, atoned and paid for all of our sins, that through him alone we are restored to God's grace, obtain forgiveness of sins through faith, and are delivered from death and all the punishment of our sins are saved eternally. For everything that provides comfort, everything that offers the favor of the grace of God to those who have transgressed by the law, is and is called the gospel in the strict sense. It is good news, joyous news, that God does not want to punish sin, but to forgive it for Christ's sake. Okay, so we see this. So repentance then in the strict sense is part of Christ's teaching. It is something that is done to us. It it is, uh, it's it's in this, as I said, said before, as the Book of Concord says, it's this entire conversion of the person. But then when we're looking at law and gospel in the strict sense, there is some law and gospel here. And we, we see this in the study notes. So when we read this, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So I think the study note has done a good job here along the lines, which I, the reason I talked about this strict and then the proper sense. So if you look in your study note, if you have your Bible, it's in that same 115 that we referenced earlier, but it's at the very bottom. Um, so in its proper sense, then, gospel does not mean the preaching of repentance, but only the preaching of God's grace. Uh, this follows directly after the preaching of repentance. So then kind of what does that mean? I mean, I think you see a law gospel here. So it's you, you repent, it's the preaching of the law, right? So that's what's going on here. It's this uh, repent and believe law. It's a, it's a law, you made aware of your sins. You are repentant, which actually the Holy Spirit helps you with that. You're convicted. But then what do you do? You believe in the gospel. So there is kind of this law gospel distinction right here. And I think that's why it's set up that way. Um, and I think the study note did a good job of, of kind of bringing it down to what the book of Concord's on that. But it is confusing. So Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. All right? Okay. All righty. Well, let's see. Jesus calls us first. Yeah, we got a couple, couple minutes here. Why don't, any more questions on that? So here we have Jesus. I talked about him. Proclaiming the gospel. Uh, repent and believe in the gospel. It's long. Law and gospel right there. Jesus calls his first disciples. Okay, let's read this and we can, okay, Barry. 
Oh, one question on this repentance. Uh, I, I think I've come to understand that it's uh, it's a gift from God, but it sounds like it's it's uh, it's an action that we have to initiate here, the way it's worded. Repent and. Uh, uh, is it just the recognition of our sin and and uh, we're convicted of that and it's an acknowledgement? Uh, I mean, if you could that's just a, comment on repentance. That's a, it's exactly. I think, yeah, this, this is kind of hard to, I think there's some disagreements on it about, you know, I talked about repentance either it comes from the Hebrew term uh, shuv, which shuv means to turn when it's used in the Old Testament. It's a kind of a passive sense to it. So there is this, that God is the one that is repenting us. And God is turning us, right? But I do think in our sanctified life, there is a part of us, too, that we, we, we realize, right, the, the law convicts us of our sin. Then we're made aware of it. And what do we do? We repent. And we are turned. We're turned to the gospel, right? And, uh, and uh, I think that's the important part of it. That's what this whole idea of repentance is. And, of course, repentance is done... By the Christian, the non-Christian has no repentance, right? Because they're not saved. They haven't been given that gift from the Holy Spirit. So repentance is something that the, actually the Christian does. Yeah. So then faith would have to be coming through the Holy Spirit right. immediately beforehand for yeah. that repentance to take place. That's right. And again, this always pushes back. As I, we were talking with the kids in catechism, you know, we look at this stuff, all this stuff as gift, right? It is all gift. Faith, faith is a gift um, in this. But Pastor may have some more on this, because this is a very complicated uh, topic, and I'm interested to hear some more. Well, on I'll, yeah. I'll do my best to just simplify it. Okay. So, uh, in context, Jesus says, and these are the first red letters in the text, the time is fulfilled. Now, to whom is he speaking, Jew or Gentile? Jew. Jew. What time is fulfilled? Messiah. The time of the Messiah. So what, does, what is their response to be to the coming of the Messiah and the pronouncement that he's arrived? Yeah. Repent, turn away from your sinful ways, and believe in the Messiah. It's that simple. I, I think to load it with any more theological jargon is to do something outside of Mark's plain intent. And then that's like level two. Level one, outside of Jesus' intent. He's simply saying the time of the Messiah has arrived. The reign of God has come. That's the gospel proclamation, if you will. What is to be your response? Turn to him, repent, and believe in him. Believe in his message. The gospel at this point is just the good news that the Messiah is here. The Savior of the world. That's all the good news. And that's that's all the more faith can articulate at this point is Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the promised Messiah. Right. So hopefully that simplifies things. We got it. Thank you very much. Yes, we have one more. Thank you, Pastor. That's excellent. Just this last week in watching YouTube issues, mm-hmm. I ran across two people, one from a Jewish background, I'm sure, and I don't remember the background of the other. They were raised without any concept of sin. It was shocking to yeah. me. But our world, I think, is not aware. Of, they are not self-aware. And I used to I know. 
grapple with this problem because I said, oh my goodness, if we preach the law to people, it's too scary. So I just would say, okay, it's like you're at the top of a building and it's on fire. What are you going to do? There's a safety net. You know, I would try to teach or mention the law and then salvation, but maybe self-awareness has to take first. Absolutely. Take place first. That's right, and I think that's right. That's why it's important we continue to study the Ten Commandments and the Bible. But I think uh, I'll end on this. Uh, Walther, uh, in his book, A Long Gospel Distinction, uh, in, our, in our class, uh, Learning How to Teach, I mean, we, we read this, that Walther said, you must preach the law in its most sternest sense. And when you first think of that, you're like, well, that's kind of scary. But here's the beautiful part of why, why we do that. Because when you do that, that then makes the gospel proclamations that sweet, right? So that's why it is important that we never do away with the law. We can never say that there, uh, the law needs to come. It needs to daily be. It needs to daily be in our lives as a reminder to show us that we are, we are sinners and that we do need the gospel, right? But then there's also uses of it. But then we also use the law um, as a guide in, in, in our sanctified life as well, so... Good, great, great point. But yes, society has no deal. We've, we've, we've watered everything down because we don't hurt, want to hurt anybody's feelings. But to be honest with you, I think uh, one of the pastor's role, I hate, this may come out wrong, but it is to kind of hurt your feelings in the sense to show you that you're a sinner. Because we, then that is to turn you towards the gospel, right? And that's what we need, right? We need the gospel. So, Just yeah. one quick thought. I know we're out of time. but okay. uh, I think the Bible says before the law, there was not an awareness of sin, and God over passed over their sins. So, uh, yeah. Now, without the Ten Commandments there in our schools and being taught in our families, yeah. uh, that maybe that's the excuse. There's no awareness of sins. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Chris said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a thought about that, which is that um, it's. Awareness of sins as defined by uh, going against God's commandments, because I can't imagine meeting anybody that would say um, that they don't have some sort of conception of, hey, that's not cool or whatever, you know, so maybe turning in your fellow drug dealer would be not cool and therefore, you know what I mean? So they're not if if they're rejecting sin, they're probably rejecting the Ten Commandments. But I, I it just I can't imagine. Can you really imagine meeting anybody that doesn't believe that there's some sort of code of right and wrong? Yeah, I mean we have that written on our heart. I mean the law is written on everybody's heart. There is yeah. So I think as a conscience, even a non-Christian knows in, the, in their heart and mind that they've got a conscience of as to some ter- certain. Uh, but then I don't think that they at the end understand the eternal consequences of violating that right. And they don't want to. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They try to justify everything. And that's why it's good for us as Lutherans. When, we, when the law is put to us, we don't. We do admit. We see it there. We see, you know, the ten, I mean, every element of the Ten Commandments. Well, we know them. And we know that at all times we don't follow every letter of it, right? And that's good for us to know that. We need to know that. And what's the first thing we do when we come into the, to the divine service? We confess that. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, right? And that's what's good. We need to know that and I think this is these are all great points so okay I think I'm a little over so thank you all very much the Lord be with you, with you.